This morning we will be looking again at Galatians 2.20, just one verse. Just to remind us, we are going through a series on holiness titled The New Year, The Real You. And what we're really highlighting is that as a Christian, we grow in Christ um, by faith. We actually grow by faith. We're not only saved by faith, but we grow by faith. Um, However, one thing we're trying to to hit home is is that though sanctification or, or becoming holy isn't by works, you do have to work at it. Now, it may sound counterintuitive, but it's a lot of effort to believe the gospel. We saw that last week. We saw Peter, who is eating with Gentiles. We'll talk more about this later. And he's enjoying sort of this mission frontier Antioch town when he's tempted to go backwards. When the Judai or the Jews came from James, Peter was tempted to go backwards in his view. He became uh, he kind of confusing to everybody by going back to following the law. So we're going to talk through that. What does it look like for us in our modern era to struggle with living out of our union with Christ? Last week we talked about um, Luther's preface to Galatians and passive righteousness. So when we talked about righteousness is is from Christ. It's his righteousness. We, We so desperately want to be right. And we're trying so many ways to be right. And what we find in the gospel is that Christ is your righteousness. Now, this week we're going to, I don't want to say build on that, but we're going to actually go underneath that with the doctrine of union with Christ. Here are a few quotes. They're also on the front of your worship guide. Hudson Taylor, uh, a great missionary that founded the China Inland Mission, says, you don't need a great faith, but faith in a great God. You don't need a great faith, but faith in a great God. What he's highlighting is, Often we think it's the amount of faith we muster, but what he discovered was it's not so much what you do, but it's the faith, it's the person whose faith you place your faith in, God, however you say that. John Calvin, I did not put this on the front, uh, all through the institutes talks about union with Christ, and he says it's the highest degree of importance if we are to understand justification correctly. John Murray wrote, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption, union with Christ. Anthony Hukama says, once you have your eyes open to this concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. And I'm going to read you a little longer quote by A.W. Pink. He says, the subject of spiritual union is the most important the most profound, the most blessed of any that is set forth in the sacred scriptures. And yet, sad to say, there is hardly any which is now more generally neglected. The very expression spiritual union is unknown in most professing Christian circles. And even where it is employed, it is given such a protracted meaning as to take, it, as to take in only a fragment of its precious truth. We're hoping to rediscover that today. We're hoping to realize what does it mean to be in union with Christ? And I would say it's one of these doctrines that you can never grasp fully. For some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard of this concept. Many of you, of course, have heard it, but it feels new, brand new, every time we come back to it. So let's look at Galatians 2.20 together. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Before I pray, I want to read you another scripture in 2 Corinthians that's very similar, has a lot of overlap where Paul says these words in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that in redeeming your own people and redeeming your children, you've redeemed us through union to your Son. Lord, we are adopted, we are justified, but we are in a mystical union. And that is, we know, really impossible to fully grasp. But yet we can rest assured that it's true. And I pray this morning that your Spirit would help us more to understand the power of understanding that truth for our daily lives, for your glory. Amen. A lot of times I think Christians think of salvation, and I've in this camp sometimes, like um, being saved. Like be, it, it's like take all these superhero movies or maybe not superhero movies, but rescue movies and lump them together and you have this scene. I'm gonna make it up right now so it's not a real movie. There's an ambulance and the person who just was rescued has the blanket around them and they're sitting on the back of the ambulance and everyone's just kind of relieved that this person and the situation's over and up walks the hero, whether they're a superhero or you know, they're like the bare, you know, someone that just, you know, helped save them. That's a human, like a, a policeman, whatever. They walk up and the person looks at the eyes of the one that saved them and they have this connection. And, and he sort of like pats the person on the head and you just know, like you've made it through the problem and then the person departs, the hero. But there's this sort of, like you can call me anytime or you can use the bat signal and I'll, I'll come to you. There's this understanding that if you have a problem, I'll come back. Is that your view of salvation? Like, Jesus saved me, he put me back on level ground, and he's available if and when I need to pray. That is not the way the Bible presents Jesus. The Bible presents Jesus as we are in union, like we're on the back of that superhero for the rest of our life. Okay, that's the way you live from now on. Like, you're never gonna be separated from that hero. Does that make sense? The answer is no, right? Of course not. I mean, it sounds great. Maybe it's making intellectual sense, but to get that into our system is next to impossible without the Spirit continually showing it to us. Most of us believe that the goal of the Christian life is to get to where we can do it on our own. That's what Paul's talking about. You're going backwards to autonomy. I've got this. Whereas union with Christ is I'm never going to have this. It's always going to be, and it always was meant to be me and Jesus having this. I'm going to keep trying to say it over and over in different ways. So the, the problem, Walter Marshall, who wrote a great book, you can get it for like 99 cents on Kindle. He's a Puritan. He wrote a book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And he had struggled and wrestled with holiness for his whole life. And then, again, like many of the people we've talked about last week, like the Wesleys and other, but earlier, the gospel came to life, and he wrote this book. And he died, actually, before he could edit it. So it's this really amazing work, but it, he re, it, uh, says over and over these truths. But one of the things that sticks out is this. Jesus is not redeeming your flesh. That's what we, most of us think. Je like, we think God's trying to fix me by myself. 
He says, actually, Jesus gave you a new nature. That's the point. So we saw that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what we're trying to figure out then is with Peter, who struggled, we talked about last week, how do we live this out? What does this look like? What would this mean? If we're created for union, then transformation comes through abiding in Jesus more and more in every area of our life. That's what we're going to talk about. The first thing I want to talk about is this is the original design. Sometimes when I come to this idea of salvation and union, I think many of us think it was sort of plan B. If Adam and Eve had done what they were supposed to do in the garden, we would have never needed a savior. We would have never needed union with Christ. Do you remember when we talked about holiness? Uh, I just went one nod. Anyone talk about holiness from 1 Peter? Remember that? It's been like a year ago, it feels like. I described uh, what was really transformative to me is in the book, Delighting in the Trinity, um, that, that the Trinity has always existed. God the Father was always the Father. God the Son was always the Son. And so anytime you come up with a definition or a theology like holiness that doesn't, could not exist before the fall, it's not correct because they always existed as a triune God. In other words, if your definition for holiness is set apart from sin, well, then how is God holy before sin? Does that make sense? So you have to have a different definition. So the author uh, of Delighting in the Trinity really unpacks the fact that holiness was this mutual intimacy and delight from the beginning, I mean, from all of time. In the same way, when you study the idea of union with Christ, we were the, the children of God, Christians, were a gift to Jesus from all of time, right? We see that in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the point of union with Christ is we were always going to be in union with the triune God through our connection and union to Jesus. The fall created a hatred of that. The fall created a distaste for that. The fall created a desire, a longing to sort of be on our own, be autonomous. And that is what we're trying to avoid when we come into this idea of union with Christ. There's a great book called The Whole Christ, and in that book, Sinclair Ferguson does a great job, and, and he, he, I've mentioned this before from the pulpit, of saying, God the Father delighted in you and loved you before Jesus saved you. Like, you were a gift to Jesus. Now, to be redeemed after the fall, we need the blood of Christ. But sometimes our theology says that, we, that God sort of didn't like us until Jesus saved us. And so he unpacks beautifully the fact that God loves you and Jesus came to rescue his people. And that's important because I want to come back to this thought. We were always designed for union of Christ. Okay, where is that outside of the Bible? Not that you ever want to leave the Bible, but it's amazing that creation follows suit. Like our own brains follow suit. I've been reading a lot of... Um, an author I've been talking about named Kurt Thompson, he's a neurobiologist, psychiatrist, one of the two. Um, and he talks about how a neuron 
like by itself is amazing but useless. Neurons have to connect, right, to be anything. And then he talks about brains. You know, we, that movie Limitless, where like if I had all of my brain, I could be like infinitely powerful. The reality is the goal was never that you'd have all of your brain. The goal is that your brain would work in unison, that all parts of your brain would fire together. And so what neurobiology is discovering is that your brain needs to be not only firing together through the prefrontal cortex, et cetera, but we need other brains as well. You need to be connected to other humans. So I don't care how introverted a person is, nobody wants to just sit in a room and not be connected to human beings. Like that's what we call isolation and you would eventually die in that state. So he quotes this person, this is just an example of how our brain needs other brains. Jim Cohn does a study where uh, they have college students, you guys are the ones that are like, you get to go in and get your feet shocked. That's what they do, they shock the feet of a college student. While they're like in an MRI machine and they're watching the the, the, um, reaction and they wanted to see the pain level but also emotional distress. Two different things they're watching for in the MRI. And after the first round, they send the college student back, but this time, you get to bring in someone that you love, someone you care about or that cares about you. This is really sounds kind of cheesy. And you get to hold their hand. So I wanna go around the room and ask, who would you bring into your study? So here you are, you're about to get your feet shocked, you're holding the hand of someone that cares for you and you for them. And this time, pain level, same. Still hurts, sorry. Still really hurts. But your emotional distress goes way down when you have someone who's loving you and holding you. We were designed to be in union, primarily and fully with the triune God, but also with each other through, you know, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. All I'm trying to say is, it's taking me years to realize this was not plan B. Plan B was not union with Christ. That was the goal. And oftentimes, we approach our sanctification, our growth, autonomously. In fact, I think sometimes what we're really trying to do in being good is to really keep Jesus away from us. There's a, a quote by Flannery O'Connor. She's, uh, she wrote Wise Blood. And Hazel Motes, the, the character that's the, the um, main character, says, as she describes him as a child, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And so we come to this place in Galatians where Paul is saying, listen, I have been crucified with Christ. Where is Jesus for you, Galatia? In chapter three, right, three verses later, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What is he saying? Why are you trying to move beyond Jesus? And so as we come to this concept, this, this beautiful theology of union with Christ, which I haven't defined yet fully, point one is you are designed for this. Okay, that's the point. But the second point is the seriousness of the fall is we really do run from this. When you look at Galatians 2, verse 20, it's interesting in the pronoun, Paul obviously has personalized it. He's talking about Peter He's talking about how in another time, another place, Peter needed to hear this news. And now he's personalizing it to tell the Galatians, I, 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 he's talking about. 
I have been crucified. And when you really start to understand what he's saying, he's saying, me as an individual who tries to live autonomously has been crucified. Does that make sense? What is, if you go to the garden, what is the sin, like the result of the sin? What do they do immediately? They cover themselves. They try to take care of the problem. They immediately scatter into isolation. They blame one another. Adam and Eve blame each other. They blame God. They cover. And this is really a picture of shame. And so I've been just really reading. I've I've recommended the book Soul of Shame to many of you. I would continue to recommend that book. And I would argue that we have to grasp shame in order to understand union with Christ. Because if we don't grasp what we do, our behaviors, apart from union, I think we lose the beauty and the importance of union with Christ. So my question to you is, do you understand the concept of shame? The definition, a working definition, is it's a feeling that there is something wrong with you, that you're not enough, that you're bad, that you don't matter. And typically, that feeling goes undetected what we do next is we take matters into our own hands, okay? This is what Peter did. Peter in Antioch is eating with Gentiles. Like, I want you to imagine they're laughing. He's trying new foods. I mean, think about it. His entire life, he could only eat the legal food. So here he is enjoying the local cuisine, and they're, I imagine, I'm going to just add my own interpretation. There's music, and there's celebration, and there's joy. And then it comes in, the folks from James, they've done nothing wrong, but for Peter, just seeing them brings him to this place of just shame. In fact, Paul says he was afraid. I imagine like a child playing with a neighbor and the dad pulls up and I, I've got to go. I'm, dad's home. You know, just that kind of like, Peter just became like a child. And in doing so, joy was zapped and he lived out of this shame. Where do we see shame first show up in the Bible? Like if you were writing the Bible, which would be a bad idea, don't do that. But if you tried, and I said, define what it was like before the fall. Like imagine just you're you're man and you're with your spouse, describe it. How would you write it? What words would you choose? What word did the Bible choose? They were naked and what? unashamed. Now, if the fall had not happened and I read that, I'd have been like, what's your point? I don't get this. You know, if if the fall never happened and you're the great, great, great grandkids and Adam and Eve tell the story, they haven't died yet, so they're telling it to you and they look 30. uh, It'd be like, this is great. What was it like? Well, we were naked and unashamed. I don't, I don't know what you're saying right now. It's shame. It's people who know shame who can go, wow. That's amazing, to be fully known and fully loved. And therefore, with that understanding, I can begin to recognize that there is something seriously wrong in the fall, something seriously wrong in my heart. Kurt Thompson says, shame is to the spiritual life like carbon is in the the physical realm. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. What forces you to turn in on yourself? What places do you turn in and say, I've got this on my own, whether religiously or irreligiously. In Hebrews 12, we read it for our, I'm just going to turn to it in here. We read it for our call to worship. I want to remind us the words of 
the writer of Hebrews, when he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, joy set before him, that is you, Christians, bring Jesus joy. Before the cross, you bring Jesus joy. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Shame. So, I think Peter felt a tremendous amount of shame. I felt like the, the, um, the Galatians thought they were following great until the Judaizers showed up. And one of the things we need to do to understand union with Christ is begin to process where you feel this part of you that says, I've got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to do this. Because it's in those moments that the idea of union with Christ disappears. The idea of passive righteousness is gone. So, okay, let's come back to Galatians 2.20 and try to understand union with Christ. After the cross, after the fall, what does Paul say in verse 2? I'm going to read it again. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Like, he lives inside of me. Like, what does that mean? I want you to wrestle with that for a little bit. There's this expression, in Christ in the Lord, in Christ the Lord, or in him. These expressions of Paul and, and John are used 216 times. And one, one theologian who really did a study on that, uses the, he says this, this being in Christ is the high point of Pauline Christianity. Once it, that is grasped, it gives clue to the whole. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that right now, Regardless of your feelings, your emotions, anything about you, if you are in Christ, who you are is in mystical union with Jesus of Nazareth. Like you are in him. It's like all you can do is make mistakes with it. It's like the Trinity. I can't explain it, but I can mess it up. Right? I can't explain union with Christ fully, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not you by yourself. And it's not you co-mingled with Jesus either. There is a you, but it's a new creation, a you in union with Jesus. And that was the way it was supposed to be from the beginning, and that's the way it will be all the way through. Going back to the whole Christ, um, I highly recommend that book as well. That's another example of a group of people. The Puritans in Scotland had become very dry, very boring. It's very tempting in, Puritan, or in a Presbyterianism. And then this idea that was rediscovered came in and Thomas Boston and others are called the Marrow Men. And they began to have vibrancy in their gospel message. And just listen to this quote. It says, when we are in him, we possess Christ himself. All of the spiritual blessings are ours immediately and simultaneously. Now, they're clear. It's not fully. Like meaning, for the rest of our life on earth until glory uh, we're having to have more, our minds renewed. We're having to take that reality that's all the way ours and have it seep into the places that are not following in line with that, i.e. Peter and Antioch, the Galatian believers. You and I, when we snap at our child, in those moments, we're still living as an I. But the goal of sanctification is to more and more abide in Christ. In fact, that's one of the key descriptions of union with, God, union with Christ in the Bible is abiding with him. And you see that in, in John. But I want to read you Jesus' high priestly prayer 
and just we've been chewing on this at our in some of our family devotions. In John 17, Jesus is famously praying for the disciples. And just listen to this list words. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. Hear that? Yours they already were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. Do you hear this back and forth? In verse 10, he goes, all are mine, or all mine are yours. He's talking to the Father. And all of yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Like when you read this prayer and you believe it, it's mind-boggling. Jesus is saying we are as united, you and I, to Jesus as Jesus was to his Father while he was on earth. Like you have that kind of union with Christ. Does that move you? So we come back to Galatians, and we have to make it practical a little bit and say, okay, what do we do with this? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I was asking my daughter, Meredith, the other day, I was reading this verse, and I said, what's the verb? What's the verb you see repeated in that, in that verse? Can we put Galatians 2.20 back up? Justin, I don't know if it's possible. Can someone just shout out the verb? There's a verb that's repeated a lot in there. Remember, verbs have action. So a noun is a person, place, or thing. Okay? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I what? Live. The verb is to live. But Christ lives. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. What does it mean to live? Is Paul saying... Like, I physically, as a human being, collapsed and died. No. He's saying the animating source of my person used to be all driven by me. Now, that person died, and my animating source is in union with Christ and lives in him. Another word for that is affections. When, when Edwards talks about the affections of the heart, he's saying, what is it that gets you to move? What is it that gets you to have movement and emotion? What is it that drives you into your life? What is it that sparks you? And so that's what we begin to ask ourselves. For Peter, he's with these people, he's enjoying this food, and the Jews show up, and he has fear. Something higher came into his mind and took him away from what he was doing with the food. I want to tell you another example where that happened for Peter that's probably more illustrative. Do you remember the story that Jesus was walking on the water? That's a pretty powerful story. Jesus comes in Matthew 14 walking on water. And every now and then when I read my Bible, I try to imagine, you know, Peter sees him and says, if it's you, Jesus, bid me come out. So Jesus says, come out. And what does Peter do? I want you to imagine now you're Peter. You're on this boat, okay? And like the awkwardness of like, you know, your legs over. What are you, what are you putting your foot on? Have you ever like, any, I mean, is that just me? Like I'm just like, okay, where did, okay, I feel some solidness. Okay, you know, like now the boat's like moving and you're kind of like, what is this like? And he looks at Jesus. Now I want you to imagine, he doesn't just stand on the water. If you read Matthew 14, 
he begins to like walk. It's like baby steps. You know, what about Bob? Like, he's like walking. I'm doing it. Okay, here you are. You're Peter. You're 10 feet from the boat. You're maybe a few feet from Jesus. And you're standing on the water. What happens next? Someone, I want you to say it. Well, I, one person who thinks they have it right. Okay, so he looks at the water, then what? Whew. We're missing something. You know what he does first? He notices the wind, and he becomes afraid. I mean, you're standing on water. The boat, and a gust of wind. Oh, some manuscripts say a strong wind. Like, so you could tell some scribes, like, we got to make this really serious because this is so crazy. Let's add the word strong and then leave it to the later translators to get, no, that doesn't belong there. Fear. He's standing before Jesus. Fear. And what does he do with fear? He looks at himself. Where are you looking at yourself? Where are you saying, I've got this? And why? Jesus loves you. I just want to tell you guys right now, Jesus came for you. The Father loves you and said, Jesus, insert your name. That's one of ours. And he came and he rescued you. And there was nothing you did to deserve it. Please don't think now you've got to make up for that. While yet an enemy that is separated from him, he came for you. Jesus is the highest thing. And I'm afraid that so often he, he loses luster for us because of shame. Like, when you don't read your Bible, is it because I don't know that I believe it's the Bible? Like, how many of you that struggle to read your Bible, is it, I'm, I'm sort of debating whether it's the Word of God. No, it's shame. When I read my Bible, like, I'm, I feel like, I just don't want to, you know. And the people who come to life and love their Bible, like Martin Luther, say, I finally understood that I was loved by Jesus and now I want to drink up every word because I am in union with Christ. I am righteous because of Jesus. And it frees you. Listen to the words of Edwards talking of Jesus. I, I used this in the bulletin a few weeks ago. Christ Jesus has true excellency. So great that when it comes, the mind comes to see it, the mind rests there. It sees a transcendent glory and an ineffable sweetness in him. It sees, the mind, that until now, all it's been pursuing is shadows. When you see Jesus, you, everything else is a shadow. But Jesus is the actual object, it says, he tells us. Before, we have been seeking happiness in a stream, but now in Jesus, we find the ocean. It is an infinite excellency in which the mind can find no bounds. Every new discovery makes this beauty appear more ravishing. Listen to me. Whatever you look for in life, wherever you're trying to find life, you know. You know that you come to the end of that. That object that you thought was going to change everything becomes old. That relationship becomes stale. That dream becomes old and useless. You get into Jesus and you can't find the bottom. Deeper and deeper and he's richer and more beautiful. He is the source. And I will say this right now. The reason that doesn't bring us excitement and joy is shame, doubt, unbelief. Can you confess that? Would I believe help my unbelief? 
Okay. I need to conclude. I, I'm barely touching this point, but I just want to wrap up by saying this. If I were meeting with a married couple who absolutely love each other, and we were having a conversation about the, think, the, the things of marriage, how marriages work, how marriages are enriched, all that stuff. And as we're about to wrap up our counseling session, I find out they live in separate apartments. In fact, they say, we until this 30 minutes ago, I haven't seen her in weeks. Like, what would you do if you were me? You're like, well, I feel like I just wasted a lot of time telling you about marriage. Like, you guys need to get together, right? Like, move into the same apartment. You're married. Maybe move into the same room, you know, move in the same house. Like, do things together. Celebrate, right? Christians, we can't walk around saying we love Jesus if we don't spend time with him. Like, I'm not, this, it's not legalism. He loves you, but you're not experiencing the love. How am I experiencing the love of my spouse if I'm never with her? So as we think about Jesus and shame and union with Christ, my invitation to you is to make some space somewhere in your day to like come before him and be fully known. Lord, I doubt you. Jesus, will you show up to this time with you? Lord, I'm praying to you. That feels strange. Read your Bible. Lord, will you help these words make sense? I believe. Help my unbelief. Engage it as a child of the living God. That's like Peter stepping out on the boat. Jesus is inviting you to do that. And I'm just encouraging us as we think about growing in holiness that if we tarry till we're better, if we keep working until we're better on our own, that's really just getting rid of Jesus. He's saying, stop it. Stop. Come to the cross. Come to me. Nothing but the blood. And in that posture, he will give you joy. Maybe not all at once, but you'll begin to get a sense, what if it's true? Like, what if he really does delight in me? What if the Trinity really has, from all of time, doted over me? What if that were true? What kind of power would that unleash in your life? I had one more thing I wanted to say. Can I say it? Who's going to say no to that? Jesus is leaving, and he says to the disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Here's what shame does. Oh, great, I've got to love everybody. How about this thought? I'm going away, one person, and there's 11 disciples at this point. You get 10 people to love you fully. 10. I'm one, I'm going. Now 10 are going to come go, how are you? How can I pray for you? How's that situation going? Can I help you? Attunement to them. What if you walked into this room and instead of having 130 people trying to evaluate whether you're dressed well and, and whether you're cool or not, you had 130 people, I don't know how many are in the room, Mark will tell me later, coming in saying, like, I care for you. I know you. Like, the, do you see what would happen if we lived out of the reality of not only union with Christ, but union with each other because of Christ, that would transform the world because the world is longing to be known and loved. Let's pray. Jesus, why do we, like Peter, fear? And I think even worse, Lord, my prayer request is that, is that we would help this congregation and myself admit it. Help us to admit that we have shame that we wonder if people like us, that we wonder if we're enough. 
And Lord, we end up filling our schedule and our minds and our hearts with so many things that distract us. Because maybe at the end of all those questions, we really are afraid you will not like us. And Lord, we know that's what Adam and Eve felt. And you've proved over and over again that the cross shows us your love for us, shows us the length that you went to. And Lord, you left us a meal that we're about to partake as a way of not only demonstrating what you did on the cross, but as we actually eat of your body and drink of your blood, words that sent the masses away from you. But as your children do that, we are demonstrating the reality of our spiritual union to you. So Holy Spirit, as we transition to communion, we pray that you would fill us with a sense of your presence this morning. Amen.